And so, you know, the, the kind of lingering question from the election is just to what extent did they actually defect to McCain? And among those who did defect or, or decided to rally behind Obama, what explained um, those, that, that decision? And it turns out there's actually, you know, a, a pretty rich literature on the effect of divisive primaries um, in general elections. Now, most of this research tends to look across elections at aggregate data, and, um, and the, the, the basic claim of this research, largely using aggregate data, is to say that there is a negative impact, a negative carryover effect when you have a divisive primary. Um, it, it is very rare for there to be individual level evidence um, there is more often just using these aggregate um, uh, data, just an assumption that what's going on is that there's psychological disaffection among those who support a losing candidate. These uh, thwarted voters um, are either going to stay home or support the opposing uh, party nominee. Um, and so you have this literature that kind of sets up this expectation that actually maybe those Puma voters were being honest, that you know it wasn't just the heat of the moment, that in fact they were, uh, you know, sincerely going to, because they were um, upset about Obama's, uh, you know, sometimes some of his comments during the campaign were construed as sexist. Geraldine Ferraro, as you might recall, said that she had a very difficult time. She's going to have to think long and hard about whether she could actually vote for Obama because he had had sex, such a sexist uh, campaign. And so this literature would actually support uh, the contention that, that these uh, voters might be at risk for Obama. Um, on the other hand, you think about the classic voting behavior research, and to the extent that anybody kind of really looks at the link between the primaries and the general election, probably the expectation coming out would be that partisans are going to come home, right? That particularly those people who are voting in a primary are probably more likely to be stronger partisans, and it's the stronger partisans who are eventually going to, to rally behind the party nominee. Um, and so, again, the, the thing that we try and sort out is just empirically um, what was, was going on um, in the 2008 uh, campaign. Uh, what we are able to use to look at the individual level um, at uh, supporters of a losing candidate is the Knowledge Network's um, AP Yahoo um, election panel, which is an 11-wave panel. It started a year um, before the uh, election day and repeatedly interviewed the same respondents um, over the course of the campaign. And so what we have, which is really terrific, is to have multiple observations of the same individuals during the primary season. Um, and so we're able to get a contemporaneous measure of who they supported in the primary. Would you compare this to, say, the NES, where, you know, you, um, you know, after months of campaigning are asking people who did you vote for in the, the primary, and you find that people are, are overwhelmingly saying that they supported the winning candidate. Uh, just to give you a, a little bit of feel for this data and, and just looking in the aggregate what we see in terms of support for Obama, um, this is, we look only at those people who are supporting Obama versus McCain um, in any given wave. Starting in, in June, what we find is that those people who voted for Obama, not surprisingly, were much more likely to say in each subsequent wave, um, well, this is aggregate level, but are much like, more likely to say that they uh, support Obama. Um, the Hillary voters um, started just 53% of them in June, of those people who said they voted for 
uh, Hillary Clinton, only 53% said they supported Obama, but that increases up to 71% by election day. The interesting group, to some extent, is, are these people who supported mainly Edwards, um, who are actually much less likely to come home to Obama, um, but it's a very small group. And so in the exit poll numbers, there's uh, a similar trend, um, although this is self-reported um, vote at that point, um, you know, on election day, uh, but you get this similar type of, of uh, distance between those various groups. And I should point out that, that we use who you actually voted for, which means that those people who didn't vote in the primary are excluded um, from our analysis. Um, okay, so, so we can look just at the basic crosstab to see um, how people actually voted because those measures were of support up until election day. So the question is, how do you, people actually cast um, their ballot? And the, the key takeaway point from this analysis, if you look first at the, the top um, rows, these are the Democratic primary voters, that um, actually those people who voted for Obama or voted for Clinton, there was little, very little difference in terms of how likely they were to actually show up on election day. That the, you know, one of the key assumptions of the, the previous divisive uh, primary literature is that people are going to stay home. And that's actually not what we're finding. And, and there's been um, a little bit of other research that, that also kind of challenges that, that key assumption. And this isn't actually terribly surprising. On the one hand, if you're willing to actually go to the polls during the primary, you're probably a voter. Right? And so um, we're not finding very much evidence that, that those people are staying home. Um, and that's similar on the uh, Republican side. And actually, one of the things that's kind of um, interesting, and if we break this out by Huckabee and, and Romney, as I was mentioning to, to Herb earlier, is that actually those people who voted for McCain in the primary were actually less likely to vote for McCain in the general election than those people who supported another Republican. Which, again, when you think about, you know, McCain himself, that's actually not terribly surprising. He, he was appealing to, in the, in the primary, some people who thought he was very independent. And as they learned more information over the course of the campaign, they realized perhaps he wasn't as great of a fit um, as they thought. Um, okay, so uh, what you do find, though, here is that there are, you know, 25% of people who voted for Clinton. And, again, this is measured right around the, the, the primaries. 25% of them who, who do end up voting for McCain, and the question is what explains that behavior? What explains those people who are willing to defect? And does it come down to sour grapes, which has been, again, the, the kind of key assumption running through uh, the divisive primary literature? Um, oh, just real quickly, this is kind of a complicated graph to, to um, try and uh, figure out with, with just a quick glance. But this is looking, rather than at vote choice, when people settled on a candidate. And uh, what we find is that although by the end of the day most of the, the Clinton voters are you know, rallying behind Obama, that actually it does take them longer to eventually come home to Obama. And so if you look at the, the, um, so the kind of dark gray are people in late spring, the, the people who make up their minds in late um, uh, late spring, the checks and the squiggle lines and the dots are those people who are essentially making up their minds um, after kind of the fall campaign, after the candidates um, are known. And what you find is that, that uh, compared to, say, Obama voters, um, that Clinton voters are much more likely to make up their minds kind of further into 
uh, the campaign, and those other Democrats even more so. Those other Democrats, if you look, those who are making up their minds in the last days of the campaign, there's more of those among those other Democrats. Again, small numbers, though. Okay, but we want to look at, at um, general election vote uh, to try and predict, um, you know, why people are defecting um, or rallying behind Obama. And so what we do is we um, say, let's, let's think about the other things that might explain whether somebody defects or not beyond sour grapes. And so as a measure of kind of psychological disaffection, what we have is in each wave of the campaign, uh, we've asked, and this is one of those Yahoo News things that I never thought that I would actually use. They insisted because it would make for, for good stories of asking people if they were excited or hopeful or fearful or frustrated about the election. Well, what's nice about this is that, that we can then look to see those people who, um, after it was known that Obama was the nominee, if they were frustrated um, with the election. And so that's our measure of sour grapes, although we've used other ones. We had some uh, direct measures of whether people thought that Obama was campaigning unfairly. But we wanted to replicate this on the Republican side, and that allowed us to, to replicate exactly the model on the, the Republican <coughs> side. So that's our measure of sour grapes. Um, in addition, we include what the other kind of factors that we might think explains voting behavior to see if, you know, sour grapes is still explaining once you, you know, account for, um, you know, just fundamental considerations like ideology and, and issue preferences and, and so on. Uh, what we report here, the change in probability um, associated with the moving from the 5th to 95th percentile on the independent variable. Um, and what is important to see here is that if you look at um, our measure of frustration right here, that it actually is statistically significant once you account for all of these other things. But I'll get back to what that actually means in terms of the election. The other things that are showing up is, as um, significant predictors, though, are ideology. And uh, the big one is Iraq war. Um, and the other one that we see is negative racial attitudes. And so, you know, we thought, okay, well, here, this, this is what predicts outcomes, but this is what predicts people's be behavior. But what was the actual <coughs> impact on the outcome of the election? And so to, to answer that question, we then moved to some simulations of what the election outcomes would be under a set of different counterfactuals. Um, and so you could just kind of compare the size and stuff, but what we wanted to know is how much was this actually um, changing the election outcomes. And, and what we did for those kind of key variables, oh, and actually things aren't showing up. Huh. Okay, so you'll just have to trust me on these results or actually read the paper. Um, so what we basically find is that, and as you might guess kind of from looking at the size of these coefficients, is that once you look at the distribution of these preferences within the electorate, that some of these effects, although significant, actually have very little predicted <coughs> effect on the election outcome. And so let me explain that a little bit better. This is particularly um, the case with, say, negative racial attitudes, where those people who say they're uncomfortable with supporting a black candidate are not surprisingly less likely to say to, to end up voting for Obama. But given that there are actually not a lot of those people, um, once you take into account, you know, how many votes would actually change given the distribution um, in uh, the electorate, that actually there's very little impact um, on the uh, election outcome. Um, and so uh, what we find kind of doing that exercise for these uh, different variables is to find that in terms of actual impact on the election outcome, 
that really it was, you know, fundamental considerations um, like ideology and particularly um, attitudes on Iraq that really explained whether people supported, at the end of the day, Obama or McCain. Um, we replicated that. Oh, here we go. So, so you don't have to distrust me. Um, so here's the effect on the the, uh, the predicted effect on the vote share. Iraq War would change um, the votes if everyone had a um, uh, if everyone strongly opposed the Iraq War. Obama would have gained uh, about 14 percentage points among this group of voters. These are all voters who supported someone other than Obama in the primary. Once you take into account their size and the um, electorate, that would have changed the election outcomes of the, the, the actual election outcomes by 2.4%. So um, Obama's win would have been 2.4 percentage points what greater. Are the other well, or modes, if it was a, right. Um, for ideology, it too has a, a very large effect. And what we find is that sour grapes and racial attitudes, again, given the distribution in the electorate, um, actually have a much smaller effect. The racial attitudes is particularly important. One, I would say, okay, we're using an explicit measure, which no doubt is susceptible to social desirability effects, so I wouldn't you know, place money on, on this um, estimate. But if you're going to look at a particular group of voters where you think that there's actually going to be an impact on the election, this is the group, right? Because there are people with negative racial attitudes that voted for Obama, but obviously those things were not salient in their decision-making in the primary, so there's no reason to think that they would become salient by the general election. You say, okay, well, there's also all these people with negative racial attitudes who voted in the Republican primary, but those are people who are unlikely to have ever voted for Obama anyway. And so where you would expect there to be an impact on the election outcome is among this subset of voters. Um, and it just turns out that, well, it's certainly there and it's certainly significant that the impact is kind of less than some have anticipated. So when you look at the um, vote share um, in the total election, it's less than, than one percentage points with this measure. Yeah. This is only among people who also voted in the primary. Yes. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so we replicated um, among the thwarted Republican voters, just as a robustness check, because you know you might think that part of what was going on that maybe issues were particularly salient among these Hillary voters because of uh, this particular election, um, and we essentially find similar things on the, on this side in the sense that it's um, again Iraq, but also abortion attitudes that are most predictive of whether um, somebody who supported someone other than McCain in the primary voted for McCain in the general election. Okay, so uh, the general conclusion is just that, one, is that those thwarted voters um, were not actually staying home um, on election day. Uh, they were slightly more likely to defect, but what explained those defections was less kind of psychological disaffection and more just a very basic rational model, right? People who agreed with the candidate um, supported the candidate and those who didn't um, did not. So I actually want to take a little bit more time. And because one of the things that came up, I have another paper, this one with um, Roy Ellis at Stanford University and Norman Nye at Stanford University who are also involved in the project. Um, 
in which we, we were talking about yesterday, okay, how do we sort out the impact of Hillary Clinton in the election, but also Sarah Palin? And um, those things might well have been related, and I'm not going to answer that question. But this other project that we're working on um, has some, I think, intriguing, so switch completely the, the thing that we're talking about, but some intriguing um, things about the, the role possibly of, of Sarah Palin. Um, and what we do is, um, I'm going to just cut to the chase. What, what we do is we look at, um, first, the impact of evaluations of the various sets of candidates, Bush, Obama, McCain, Palin, and Biden, on vote choice over the course, vote preference over the course of the election. Um, and uh, what you generally find is not surprisingly that if you ask about evaluations of Obama and McCain, that those are exceptionally predictive of how people um, are going to vote. Um, they get bigger the further you are into the campaign, um, where you kind of find um, the opposite, you know, with, with Bush in terms of retrospective voting, once you account for the actual candidates that, that Bush is, is doing a little bit less. Once you um, start comparing Palin and Biden, um, Palin ends up just, these are all just correlational. I would never make any causal claims, but this correlation, right, of your favorability of Palin is about equivalent um, to that of, of McCain. Um, and whether you look at these individually um, on their own or all together, this is looking at them all together. Um, looking at them all together, um, you know, the model, I think, almost blows up, right? Like you predict with 99% uh, correctly predict. But whatever, the same, same thing. The, ba the basic finding is really it's, it's, it's about um, the candidates um, and Palin. So it's about McCain, Obama, and Palin. Okay, so that's not a big surprise, but what we wanted to look at is, okay, so, so um, this predicts kind of your, this correlates with, um, your vote choice, but what predicts changes in vote choice? And if you look, for instance, very early on, you know, that Bush has a, a, a very large effect on kind of where, who you supported in wave one, whether you say you're going to vote for a Democrat or Republican. And that essentially kind of goes away by, by election day. But the question is, is um, how do these evaluations of the candidates relate to whether you change your mind? And what we're able to do with this uh, setup of, of the, the data is to take um, wave five, which is right at the end of the primaries, and say, okay, what predicts um, whether people change their mind between wave five and the each subsequent wave? So what's reported here um, is for those people in wave five who are undecided, um, their vote choice um, in waves seven, eight, nine, and 10. Okay, so what this is doing is, is looking at the effect of these different candidate evaluations on the, the likelihood that somebody transitions to another candidate. And this is a lot to kind of, this is summarizing a lot of uh, models into one table, but the basic finding here to take away is not surprisingly that again, the candidates have a very large impact on whether people transition to another candidate. Um, but Palin um, has a particularly large um, effect. And that Bush, while Bush was very important in predicting kind of where you start at the beginning of the campaign, 
Bush has very little impact on the likelihood that you move your vote choice during the campaign. And so that's um, people who are undecided in Wave 5. If we look at those people who supported McCain in Wave 5, um, here the interesting thing again, if you change your favorability of McCain, that has a pretty large impact on whether you switch your vote choice. But so too does it if you change your, you know, that your evaluation of Palin also has an impact on how you, um, the likelihood that you uh, transition your vote choice. And there's almost no effect um, uh, among those people who supported Obama in Wave 5, what you think of Biden has almost no impact on whether or not you change your vote choice. Okay, so I know that was um, jumping around and completely off topic, but I thought, um, <laughs> given that that was one of the things we kind of talked about, that I wanted to show some of those uh, initial results. And I will stop there. Okay. Let me begin just by putting a little, little bit of context on this that hopefully will make some sense when I get to the end of the talk. Um, Herb and Rick very generously have invited me to uh, uh, the last two of the conferences on, on elections, 2000 and 2004. And for both of those uh, pre previous conferences, I did a, uh, the same type of analysis looking at the impact of ideology on vote choice and the impact of ideology on the other proximal influences on vote choice in each of those two years, and got what at first to me were kind of surprising findings in 2000, but they were consistent between 2000 and 2004, a result which showed that ideology had no effect on vote choice, no direct effect on vote choice, once you take the other sort of standard actors into account, like party identification, feelings about the candidates, issue attitudes, and retrospective judgments of various kinds. So found this very consistently over the preceding two elections, and we come to the 2008 election, which is, of course, our topic here. And the main question of the day, uh, of the conference, is was 2008 a transformative event? Was it a transformational election? So the purpose of the analysis here is to look at whether there are any new or different features in the issue or ideological landscape within the electorate uh, that might lead us to think that there was some sort of transformation, or perhaps something new and different in the way uh, uh, citizens took their issue preferences, or I should say their policy preferences and their ideological considerations and translated them into political choices to see if there were, uh, uh, if there was anything that changed uh, from 2004 to 2008. Well, I began with just very, very simple idea. Let's take a look at issue preferences in 2008. Uh, of course, in 2008, uh, we elected a liberal presidential candidate uh, to be president four years after we resoundingly re-elected uh, a pretty aggressively conservative candidate to be president. So this is, at least superficially, some evidence that something transformed and changed between those times. And perhaps it was the electorate. Perhaps the electorate's uh, issue orientations uh, leaned in a liberal direction. Well, definitely not. Um, using the standard uh, traditional uh, issue scales in the national election studies. Of course, there was a, a split ballot uh, uh, form. I am using the, the I guess, old-fashioned seven-point scales here because I wanted to make the comparisons to the previous years. 
Uh, based upon that, what this very simple diagram shows is the mean positions of the uh, 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 respondents on these items uh, across the seven seven-point issue scales uh, with uh, the error bars representing plus or minus one standard deviation in each direction. Uh, the neutral point is right here. And basically, on some issues, the mean is on the liberal side, so uh, uh, government spending versus services, government health insurance. Uh, the role of women, of course, it's way over on the uh, uh, liberal side. Everybody agrees women should have an equal role. Um, there is one issue, environment versus the economy, where the, uh, uh, the mean is not significantly different from the neutral midpoint. And then on the remaining issues, uh, guaranteed jobs, government aid to African Americans, and defense spending, the mean is on the conservative side. So you certainly can't say that the public leaned in a liberal direction, and that's what gave us a transformational election if one occurred in 2008. So uh, perhaps even if we can't say the public leaned consistently or, or was oriented consistently in a direction, maybe this is still transformational in the sense that perhaps the public got more liberal in 2008 compared to where it stood or they stood or we stood in 2004. Uh, again, some very simple evidence which shows right away that didn't happen. Uh, these are just histograms of the distribution of responses on each of those same seven-point issue scales in both 2004 and 2008. And, you know, you don't have to look at this very long to see. Uh, comparing across the years, the histograms look virtually identical for each of these, uh, uh, each of these issue uh, uh, scales here. So uh, on an issue-by-issue -issue basis, uh, there was essentially no movement uh, over time, no, no significant movement of any kind. So it doesn't appear that the public was transformed in terms of their general issue preferences. Uh, maybe there was a transformation in their ability to translate issue preferences into vote choice. Well, in order to evaluate this, of course, Mike is always pushing those of us who work together on the book to bring in things from the American Voter Revisited. So as you all probably remember in the original American Voter and then what we did in the American Voter Revisited was look at a set of logical preconditions that, that people have to meet in order to be able to cast an issue-based vote. So people have to be uh, uh, at least uh, uh, minimally interested in an issue, consider an issue as important. They've got to take a non-neutral uh, 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 non stand on an issue, and they have to perceive that the candidates take different stands in order to be able to cast a meaningful vote on the basis of that issue. Well, perhaps the public was uniquely able to cast issue-based votes in 2008, and I know you can't read the numbers over here, but essentially uh, that's not the case either. Uh, on only two of the seven issues were even a bare majority of the public, uh, uh, did a bare majority of the public meet these issue preconditions, and on the remaining five issues, uh, most of them weren't too far below 50%, but less than half the public met these preconditions. So uh, uh, that by itself isn't terribly different from what we found in other years. Uh, it's more than the American voter found back in the 1950s, but there was certainly, as far as we could tell from this admittedly very simple evidence here, a, a little reason to believe that the public was more attuned to issues or more willing to bring uh, liberal orientations on the issues to bear uh, on their votes in 2008. Uh, just very quickly, lest one interpret this to say, oh, the public couldn't cast votes on the basis of issues. Well, that's not really true either because, of course, there were seven different issues and a person could meet the preconditions for issue voting on one or more than one. And when you look at the number of issues for which each person met those preconditions, there are only about 12% who didn't meet preconditions on any of the issues. So uh, uh, there at least certainly is some capacity for issue voting here. And we'll, we'll come back to this here. It, it's not 
you know, the, the preliminary signs don't make this look like this is a big policy-oriented election, as, as far as I can tell here. Well, turning from issues to ideology, I'm interested in liberal conservative uh, uh, self-placements and uh, ideology and its various influences on public opinion and political behavior. So applying the same logic that I just applied to issue preferences, taking a very simple approach to start with, let's think, or let's ask the question, was the public liberal in 2008? Was it more liberal than it was in 2004? And you can guess the answer to both of those questions is no. Uh, in 2008, this is the distribution of, uh, of, of self-placements on the liberal conservative scale. Uh, there is the 2004 distribution, distribution of placements, and once again, they pretty much look the same. Uh, there, there is some movement. It's actually polarization in both directions in 2008, but it's not, uh, I, I think it's statistically significant, but this is one of those cases where in substantive terms, I don't think it really makes very much difference. As has been the case since we started asking about liberal conservative self-placements, there are many more people who call themselves conservatives than call themselves liberals, and the by now pretty much standard 25% of the electorate said uh, they don't think of themselves this way, so they aren't even considered in there at all. So ideology, at least in terms of self-placements, doesn't seem terribly distinctive, but what about the candidates? I mean, we have uh, the, the, uh, 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 the Maverick candidate on the Republican side who uh, actually in 2000 wasn't viewed as particularly conservative, and I don't really recall him using the term conservative to describe himself. Um, as we all know, no sane candidate calls him or herself a liberal openly in uh, American political rhetoric. So uh, Obama wasn't doing that either. So maybe there's some reason to think that people might have difficulty, or if not difficulty, just not be terribly willing to identify liberal and conservative placements for the two candidates. So I looked at uh, public perceptions of where uh, uh, Obama and uh, McCain uh, uh, were placed on the liberal conservative scale. And for the non-black Population. I, 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 let me interject here that uh, uh, given Barack Obama's race, one might uh, a priori expect some racial effects on, on perceptions of the candidates here. So looking first at non-black respondents only, um, perceptions of Obama's ideology place him over on the liberal side of the scale with some perhaps uncertainty or variability at least in exactly how liberal he, uh, uh, he is. Uh, with John McCain, perhaps a little bit surprisingly, there, there was, it seems to be more concentration in his placement on the conservative side of the scale. And uh, uh, certainly modal, uh, modal perception is of him as a conservative but not an extreme conservative. So in terms of public perceptions, at least in the non-black portion of the electorate, things look pretty standard here. Once again, nothing terribly different from what we've seen in lots of other elections until we come to the African-American segment of the electorate and where they saw McCain and Obama. When we look at their placements, they look a little bit different. These distributions are basically rectangular. Uh, there is uh, as much perception that Obama is conservative as that he is liberal among the African-American population. There's a little more agreement that McCain is conservative than, than liberal, but, but not a great deal. These are not education effects. Uh, uh, I don't have the, 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 um, uh, the slides here to show that, but if you stratify by levels of education, these don't change very much. They look like this pretty, pretty much the same uh, uh, at various levels of education. So what's going on here? Uh, what, what leads to this variability in perceptions of candidate ideology? Clearly, there's something that's leading to this. Well, part of it, of course, might be the candidates themselves. Uh, as, as we said, they, they had various reasons to avoid explicit ideological terminology, so we at least want to allow for that possibility. Uh, at the same time, there's great likelihood that part of this variability, at least, is due to some of the characteristics of the citizens who are doing the perceptions. 
So as we all know, or as you know, conventional theory and evidence suggests uh, or has shown us before, um, ideological thinking is concentrated or tends to be concentrated among the more sophisticated uh, strata within the electorate. So perhaps part of this variability comes from mixing these, these uh, 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 un relatively unsophisticated citizens who aren't sure about candidate ideology and more sophisticated people who presumably are more likely to place McCain on the right side of the ideological continuum and, and Obama on the left side of the ideological continuum. So political sophistication is a possibility. Uh, at the same time, there uh, has long been, at least since the early 1970s, concern about various rationalization effects in public perceptions. So uh, projection where a person projects his or her own ideological proclivities onto the candidates, uh, pulling the candidates they like closer to themselves, pushing away the candidates they dislike. Uh, there's a possibility of persuasion effects too, but I think uh, uh, projection is a little more uh, uh, widely uh, uh, widely. Uh, viewed as a matter of concern in public opinion. So to allow for this possibility, it's specified a model in which uh, perceptions of Obama and of uh, McCain uh, ideology were a function of individual political sophistication measured by the NES interviewer's assessment of the respondent's level of political information. That was, uh, apart from just education, which I don't think is a particularly good measure of sophistication, really the only measure of sophistication that was available in this version of the NES data that I employed here. So political sophistication. Also, each respondent's own ideological position. Uh, again, under the assumption that where they place themselves is going to have an effect on where they place the candidate. And at the same time, the effect of their own ideological position is itself going to be conditioned by how they feel toward the candidate. The more they like the candidate, the more likely, according to the rationalization hypothesis, they're going to pull the candidate toward them. The more they dislike a candidate, the more they're likely to push the candidate away from them. So estimating a model of that kind, I centered all the variables. So uh, 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 the ideological continuum was centered, moderate position at zero. The feeling thermometers that I used to measure candidate evaluations, the, the original score of 50 is set to zero. Political sophistication is set to the average level within the public. Uh, estimate a model here, and again, I know you can't read the coefficients there, but with with uh, 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 those kinds of definitions for the variables, the intercept is a meaningful quantity. The intercept in this model, and by the way, I estimated the model separately for African-Americans and for non-black respondents, separate equation for perceptions of Obama and perceptions of McCain. So four different equations there. The intercept is meaningful. The intercept is the mean position or the mean perception of the candidate among people of average sophistication who feel neutral about the candidates and who place themselves in the center of the ideological continuum. As we would expect, both among African Americans and the non-black segment, Obama gets, on average, a negative significant value for the intercept. These people place Obama on the liberal side. And similarly, McCain is placed on the conservative side. Political sophistication has the expected effects. The more sophisticated people are, the more likely they are to place Obama at further to the left, uh, a position further to the left on the ideological continuum, and the more likely a more sophisticated person is to place McCain further to the right on the ideological continuum. And that's pretty much true both among African Americans and, and the rest of the electorate. Now, the other, the, the, these rationalization effects involve multiplicative terms and so on that get messy and uh, uh, difficult to try to talk about in terms of the numerical results. So I take a graphical approach here. These are perceptions of Obama's ideology among uh, non-black respondents and among black respondents. The horizontal axis is the respondent's own ideology from extremely liberal to extremely conservative. In each panel, the vertical axis is the same thing. Their perception of Obama from extremely liberal to extremely conservative. 
calculated separately from people who feel very negatively to those who feel very positive, from 0 to 100 on the feeling thermometer scale. Among non-black respondents, there is rationalization. Uh, people who don't like Obama push him away from themselves, so extreme conservatives place Obama at the most liberal position. Uh, extreme liberals push him away, but only to the moderate position. They don't push him over onto the conservative side. We go to the other end up here, to people who feel very positive toward Obama. They give them the highest possible feeling thermometer rating. Uh, they, pull him, they pull Obama toward themselves. So uh, uh, liberals believe Obama is a liberal. Uh, conservatives pull Obama to the moderate point. Now, it goes just over the, 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 the moderate dotted line there, but that's not a statistically significant difference. So there's some project, I'm sorry, there's some rationalization among the non-black population with respect to Obama, but it is not the case that conservatives, or I'm sorry, it's not the case that, that uh, 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 people are pushing Obama anywhere into the conservative side of the liberal conservative continuum. When we go to African Americans, however, first of all, there's basically nobody down here. Uh, there, there are very, very few African Americans who rated Obama neutral or below on the feeling thermometer. So really, all of the action is up in the top there. And if you look at those slopes, which represent the mean placement of Obama, essentially, extreme liberals saw him as extreme liberal, uh, extreme conservatives among the African community, American community, and, and there were a, a reasonable number of them saw him as extremely conservative. So there are ex very, very strong rationalization effects over uh, among the African-American population. Where people place themselves, that's where they placed, on average, Barack Obama at the same time. Um, perhaps not entirely unexpected, but certainly very interesting, and interesting in particular in the contrast to non-black respondents. Also very interesting in the contrast to what happened or perhaps didn't happen with respect to John McCain. Uh, first of all, the differences across the racial groups are very minor. Uh, so African-Americans and non-African-Americans, uh, to the extent these rationalization processes exist with, with respect to McCain, they operate very similarly among both groups here. Um, among people who felt positive to neutral about John McCain, either African-American or otherwise, some rationalization effects, but no tendency to push him over into the liberal side. People recognized him as either a moderate to conservative Republican, where the rationalization effects occurred with respect to McCain are among the people who didn't like him both African-American and non-African-American. And in this case, unlike what was happening with Barack Obama among the African-American population who liked him, here people are pushing him away. Those who are extremely liberal and extremely negative toward John McCain perceive him as extremely conservative. Those who are extremely conservative and don't like John McCain, and there were quite a few of those, uh, they perceive him as at least moderately liberal in these cases here. So the upshot, at least it seems to me, is that when it comes to ideological perceptions, uh, Barack Obama was probably certainly not hurt and probably helped by rationalization processes. Among the non-African American population, people saw him as, as a liberal. Uh, very, very little variation, maybe variation in the extent or the extremity of his liberalism. Uh, but among African Americans, for Barack Obama, not for McCain, but for Barack Obama, uh, he was all things to all people, essentially. Uh, with McCain, uh, those who liked McCain, ideology didn't help. Those who disliked McCain, uh, ideology became the double whammy. They uh, became another reason to dislike him because those who disliked him saw his ideology as different from theirs. So I thought this was kind of interesting here. 
Um, when it gets to vote choice, uh, uh, when it comes down to ideology and issue attitudes, what effect did they have on vote choices here? Uh, again, I mentioned I, I did a similar analysis for the 2004 election, 2000 election as well. Use six major independent variables. I don't think most people would argue too much about them. Uh, there are the two that are of greatest interest here, issue preferences or issue attitudes created a summated rating scale based upon those seven-point uh, seven issue questions to summarize a person's overall sort of general policy preferences. Uh, in addition, the ideological self-placement variable, those are the, the two of major interest. Furthermore, uh, in order to test uh, sort of standard theories of ideological thinking and political sophistication, I allow the impact of issue preferences and ideology to vary across levels of political sophistication, once again measured by the NES interviewer's uh, assessment of the respondent's level of political information. In addition to those two variables, uh, candidate personality assessments, a summary variable of their, their uh, relative judgments about Barack Obama's and John McCain's personality traits, uh, party identification, the standard workhorse variable, and then two retrospective evaluations, a sociotropic economic judgment variable, uh, well, how do you think the economy has been doing, as well as unemployment and uh, uh, inflation, and then uh, a summary variable of assessments about the, uh, 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 the, the Iraq war. Has it, uh, I, I can't remember the exact wording of the question. We've certainly seen them a little bit here. So pretty standard model. Again, I allow the effects of uh, uh, issue attitudes and uh, uh, ideology to vary across levels of sophistication. Again, I know you can't read the coefficients, so just a couple of points I'm going to make here. The retrospective judgments about Iraq and about the economy, non-significant. Uh, uh, we talked about this, that everybody knew the economy had tanked, so there's no variance there to explain it. Uh, particularly given our discussions this morning, I was a little bit surprised that feelings about the Iraq War, once we take these other things into account, didn't have uh, apparently additional effects. The conditional effects that I talked about for uh, sophistication, uh, the impact of issue attitudes did vary across levels of political sophistication. Ideology didn't. It didn't matter how sophisticated a person was or how much information uh, about politics the person possessed, according to the NES interviewer's assessment. And these people generally know what they're talking about here. Um, ideology has a significant effect regardless of that. To try to summarize this, uh, you know, numbers in logistic regression equations are a little weird. Uh, I like to use graphical evidence here. So uh, the clarity of a variable, I'm sorry, the strength of a variable's impact on vote choice, the probability of a McCain vote, is indicated by the clarity of the S-shape in the uh, predicted probabilities here. These are just predicted probabilities of a McCain vote across the range of each of the variables. With candidate personalities up there, you can see very clear S showing that candidate personalities, no surprise, uh, had the strongest effect of all the variables here. Party identification and ideology, very similar in each case here. Both have significant effects, uh, uh, not the strongest, but uh, uh, not the weakest either. Um, Economics, uh, assessment of the economy, assessment of Iraq, you probably can't see the confidence bands too clearly there, but the predicted probabilities aren't quite horizontal, but you could easily fit a horizontal line within those confidence bands, indicating that they have non-significant effects. Finally, for uh, issue attitudes, which I mentioned uh, did vary in their effect across uh, levels of political sophistication, Lowest sophistication here, it actually appears to have a negative effect, that the more conservative you are in your issue preferences, the less the probability that you're going to vote for McCain. Of course, there's a huge, wide confidence band there. So that's, this is, again, for people of low sophistication, issues didn't have much of an effect. At average sophistication, it comes to have an effect, and then there's a relatively clear S-shape among highly sophisticated people. So issues have an effect, but primarily among the most sophisticated. 
Uh, going very quickly, because I know I don't, uh, don't want to take up too much time here. Uh, of course, part of the importance of ideology, and not just ideology, but also party identification, are not only their direct effects on the vote, in fact, some would say that isn't their most important impact, it's the fact that uh, uh, variables like party identification and ideology actually influence the other more proximate influences on the vote. So I looked at indirect effects, the impact of party identification and ideology on these other four variables here. And uh, again, I wish, there were, I, I wish I could say, oh yeah, they all had an effect, they all didn't, but the effects vary from one to the next. So sociotropic economic judgments, party does have an effect. As we said, you know, there is variability there. Everybody knew the economy had tanked, but the degree to which they thought it was going bad varied. And uh, uh, it varied according to partisanship. It didn't vary according to ideology. Feelings about the Iraq War uh, varied by uh, uh, partisanship uh, and by ideology. Uh, feelings about uh, uh, personality assessments, both ideology and partisanship had an effect. Uh, also with issue attitudes, but with issue attitudes, there was a conditional effect. So um, uh, these are graphs of the conditional effects here. I didn't show confidence bands, but to, to make a long story short, feelings about the Iraq War, more sophisticated people, the effect of party identification goes up. In order for partisanship to have an, a, a, an impact on how people felt about Iraq, they had to be sophisticated. That is not the case with uh, uh, ideology, which is weird as, as far as I'm concerned. With issue attitudes, both ideology and uh, 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 both ideology and uh, party identification, the more sophisticated people were, the more impact it had. So, what's going on here? I mean, what are, what are, what are the general conclusions to be drawn for this uh, from this? Well, the story isn't a simple one. Um, in 2004 and 2000, I had a simple story to tell, tell about these things. It was initially a little surprising, but but uh, it wasn't was pretty straightforward. In 2008, I don't think it is quite so straightforward. Um, what this suggests, what my model suggests, is that one thing we can say is that this wasn't a simple knee-jerk referendum on the Bush presidency. Uh, those retrospective evaluation variables had, had no effect once you take these other things into account here. So people weren't just making simple reactions to what was going on. Of course, I realized that, that feelings about Iraq influenced these other things as well. So it, I'm not saying those effects don't exist, but direct effects on the vote I'm not so sure about. Issue attitudes. Well, issue attitudes have a conditional effect. In order for issues to have an effect on the vote, people had to be fairly sophisticated. That's different from what happened in 2000 and 2004. In both of those years, I looked for these sophistication effects on issue attitudes. They weren't there. So in order to apply issues to voting choices in 2008, all of a sudden, that, that ability seems to be most concentrated within, within the most sophisticated stratum of the electorate. Ideology. The very fact that ideology has an effect makes 2008 different from 2004 and 2000. Uh, in those two years, ideology had no direct effect. Here it does, and it's an effect that seems to be relatively pervasive throughout the electorate. Uh, at the same time, personality still has a stronger, or personality judgments have a stronger effect than any of these other variables. But again, I think the interesting thing here is that for the first time in at least two elections, using this model, remember, same model estimated. So even if you disagree with the model specification, I was looking at the same model over the two previous elections with, of course, the uh, Iraq was not included in 2000. But uh, uh, suddenly, ideology comes back. Well, the juxtaposition here, ideology has an effect that's pervasive throughout the electorate. Uh, issue attitudes have this effect that's primarily confined to the most sophisticated, and the relationship between ideology and issue attitudes is confined to the most sophisticated there. So what does this tell us here? What this tells me, at least, is that, yeah, ideology was an important influence in 2008, but it was ideology in the symbolic sense, ideology in the sense of a, a factor that people use as a heuristic to divide the world into us and them, 
to develop emotional reactions favoring their side, disliking the other side. I don't think it's ideology in terms of an abstract set of principles that people can use to construct their view of what the reality of the world is. So to answer the question that we started with here, was it transformative? Was this a transformative election in terms of issues and ideology? Well, of course, the answer depends on how you define transformative. Um, but if it was, it was transformative, I think, in a relatively limited sense, a symbolic sense rather than a, a structural ideology sense. But uh, that can be pretty important in itself. So I guess the answer in the end is yes. So thank you. Okay, um, it's a great delight for me to be here at uh, one of the finest land-grant universities, Iowa State University. <laughs> Thank Herb for inviting me here. Um, and also, I want to thank my, my co-author, Bill Jacoby, for making my topic interesting because uh, I was worried that we talked so long about how the economy was important that this wasn't, I wasn't going to have anything to say, but Bill just found that it didn't have anything to do with the election, so, so we're reopening that issue. Uh, this paper was, uh, uh, was written with uh, Richard Nadeau, my co-author at the University of Montreal. Uh, this is a theory paper. It's aiming at, uh, and this, this is about uh, data from the uh, 2008 election, but it's really a, it's a theoretical paper in which I used 2008 to test test some ideas we have, and you know, uh, I'm the boy with the hammer, so now I'm hammering something else with this economic voting thing, and uh, that's what this is about. We're trying to extend uh, some theoretical notions in economic voting, and there's been a lot written on economic voting, as you know, and uh, by and large, it uh, overwhelmingly shows that the economy makes a difference. Governments are punished for bad economies and rewarded for good economies. Um, essentially, uh, this is a uh, valence notion of the economy. Uh, people like a good economy. They don't like a bad economy. And, and the, the economic voting literature is uh, focused around very successfully around the valence idea. And what we're arguing is that this idea has crowded out other views of economic voting, in particular uh, positional economic voting, where people may disagree on economic policy. Uh, for example, people may disagree on government regulation or government intervention or welfare uh, spending. So they have different positions. And then the question is, do these different positions on economic policy have any throw weight beyond valence issues themselves? And then a third one, and I'm not sure. I don't want to run ahead of my slides here. I, but I, well, if I do, I do. So the third one is... Uh, which is there's no work been done on uh, is patrimonial, what we call patrimonial economic voting. And this is essentially has to do with ownership, how much you own. Do you own stocks? Do you own bonds? Do you own a house? Do you own land? Do you own property? Um, this is not the same thing as social class and uh, Karl Marx, where we got this idea from, didn't think it was the same as social class either. And uh, so, so what this enterprise is about is uh, 
testing some standard ideas about economic voting, but also looking at some new ideas. And uh, the valence idea, and I'm going to do like well with Bill, you know, everything that we do you know, goes back to the American voter, uh, and uh, including economic voting studies. And in a paper that I have coming out, uh, Electoral Studies is doing a special issue on uh, the American voter revisited and the American voter. And uh, I have a paper in there about the economic antecedents of uh, the idea. It's called uh, From the American Voter to the Economic Voter. And some of you have heard this story. But anyway, in Chapter 14 in the American Voter, the unabridged original fat version, all the essential theory of, of, of economic voting is laid out in that chapter. No one knows this. And the reason is because that chapter was excised. It was abridged because the because uh, Bernie Cohen at the University of Wisconsin uh, edited the volume down from 600 pages to 300 pages so Gary and I could, uh, could read it as a grad student, and that chapter was lost. Um, so anyway, that's just that's a little bit of history. Uh, the valence idea, uh, again, uh, touched, touching back to the American voters, Stokes articulated the valence idea and, in fact, said valence was a defined by uh, you know economic prosperity was the valence issue par excellence. Stokes went on with Butler to argue that really laid down the reward and punishment idea uh, in, in terms of economic voting. So I'm I'm just emphasizing the American voter origins of these ideas, which are there. Uh, then characters you're more familiar with, uh, uh, Bioki and Fiorina, added to, formalized, extended this. Uh, Kinder and Kiewit gave us the notion of uh, sociotropic and uh, voting uh, Fiorina, the retrospective idea. So this is a little sketch, some economic voting theory. And I'm, I'm doing this so I can show you some extensions. Um, now, with regard to position issues, of course, Stokes also talked about those, and he defines position issues here. You can see the definition. That's obviously just, you know, where the public has different positions. They, they form a distribution rather at a, than at a single point. Um, Rod Kiewit, and I, if you read the paper, there's one book that more than any other uh, distills uh, economic voting theory, and that's Rod Kiewit's book, 1983. I also, I need to make another Iowa plug. Rod is, got his BA from uh, University of Iowa, and he... Uh, he doesn't like it when I say this is a good book, but I think it's just a great book, so I'm going to tell you to, to get this book, uh, Kiewit's book on economic voting in 83. He makes a distinction between policy-oriented and incumbency-oriented economic voting. Incumbency-oriented economic voting is the kind where the economy's bad, you vote against the government. Policy-oriented economic voting is uh, unemployment goes up, you vote for the Democrats, you vote for the party. And Rod points out that that kind of vote, that kind of economic voting, policy oriented, is not much studied. Uh, that's uh, something we're looking at. So, with regard to patrimony, I mentioned that uh, where the, the origins of patrimony, and we think that has some uh, policy implications. The data, we look at the CCAP data, um, and um, we, you've seen that before. We the University of Iowa, uh, myself and uh, Carolyn Tolbert, we purchased a battery of questions in the CCAP, uh, the October wave. We have a battery of economic voting questions. We, and this is the battery. We had a number of questions on valence issues, position issues, and uh, patrimony. 
we selected what we thought were leading uh, indicators of each of these. So we have for the valence, to measure valence attitudes about the economy, we take the standard sociotropic respect, retrospective measure, which is simply asking uh, the respondent over the last year, do you think the economy has gotten better or not, better or worse or the same? Uh, with position, the positional uh, measure is a measure about progressive tax policy. Uh, how much do you think the rich should be taxed? I'll show you the wording on that in a second. Uh, then the patrimony is an index built of whether you own a home, a business, rental properties, stocks. So we have these three basic measures of uh, the economy. And the, the exercise here is to see what these things bias in terms of explaining the, uh, the vote. This is a first set of data. On the valence, what you see is uh, column one is the distribution on the valence issue. You, you, you see there is variance. If the variance, as some of you pointed out, is between worse and much worse. This distribution is very similar to the ANES data, so it gives you confidence that it's a, a useful data set. And you see also vote the attitudes about retrospective voting uh, or the retrospective condition of the economy seem very strongly in a bivariate way related to uh, Obama's preferences. That's, oh, excuse me, that's, that's a standard result, okay? The retrospective result, a standard result. Now we're getting into some of the new stuff, and this is uh, our positional measure. It's on tax policy. I think it's worth looking at the wording of the question. Uh, suppose a rich person has $1 and a poor person has $1. How much tax should be paid on that dollar? And then the options are the rich person pays 60 cents and the poor person pays 10 cents, all the way down to the rich person pays 30 cents, the poor person pays 30 cents. So it's a question asking people uh, about progressive taxation. And, uh, well, there's two interesting things here. Notice that the uh, majority of Americans do not believe in the progressive income tax, which is... I was stunned by that result, but there it is, folks. Um, they either uh, they either want to even they either want a flat tax or they don't know what they want. Um, so also, you see, this variable really cuts the pie in terms of whether or not you're for Obama. If you only people who are for Obama are people who believe in some progressivity in the tax structure. If you believe, if you don't know what the, the tax structure should be, or if you think, uh, no, excuse me, not, not, no, that's not true. If, if you believe in a flat tax, you're totally for McCain. Otherwise, you're for Obama. That's, that is a really interesting result, which we were, we, we were delighted to find. Uh, we made this question up. It's, it's never been used before. A lot of people think it's bunk, but it correlates 0.5 with the vote choice. It's the biggest correlation of anything we've got besides party ID. So we believe in this, and we think it should be widely used. Uh, this is the patrimony measure. It's the distribution on ownership. And you see, again, it's related to Obama preference in the expected direction. People who have nothing are very pro-Obama. The more they get, the less they're for Obama, and the more they're for McCain. So those are some bivariate results, which uh, we think are fun. Uh, it's just some more stuff. Now, the models. What are the things they can own again? They can own a home, a stock, a property, like a house. I mean, a, a business. So you can get from zero to four. You can own four things or nothing. That's, that's the range. Um, so in terms of the models, um, the 
the first model, and again, I want to invoke the, the, the theory, the tunnel of causality, the funnel of causality. Sometimes it feels like a tunnel when you're in it. But um, essentially, and I should say Herb, in the American Voter Revisited, drew the drawing in that book, Herb drew that with his, uh, crayo his own Crayolas. <laughs> and Dino drew it, actually. It's quite, quite a nice... <laughs> Quite a nice, pic, very nice picture. And, and one, uh, you know, more contemporary way to think about the funnel is actually it's just about you're farther back in the tunnel, funnel, <laughs> funnel, uh, the more exogenous you are as a variable. It's about exogeneity, okay? That's, that's a modern way to think about it. So um, the first thing we thought we needed to establish was that this patrimony idea was not just crackpot, so, and that, that the, the patrimony idea the patrimony variable could survive um, competition with other socio-demographic variables, that it wasn't just picking up other social class in other ways. So the first model is a, a basically an SES model, adding patrimony. Um, and I'll, I'll note this, the sample sizes on these uh, CCAP data is too small to break down races as finely as we would like to, so it's, it's black, non-black, the breakdown on race. But um, then we, we elaborate the... We gradually elaborate the specification to look at other things. That's the strategy here. Um, so, and also, you know, I believe in, uh, oh, I love Dino's phrase, you know, slim models. You know, I, I like that, slim. I like slim models rather than, uh, you know, parsimonious models is what I like. I'd never heard that word slim before. I like that. So, some results, some logistic regressions, and... Um, what you see here, the uh, first model is uh, you've got the patrimony variable in there with the it's the it's the SES model with patrimony and there's a, a, a significant effect from patrimony. Patrimony comes through in the face of all these other SES controls. That's the message on on uh, the first model, um, and so so it survives those controls. That's that's the point there. The what do I got? Yeah. So the second model then brings in party ID, and what you see is that party ID wipes out the patrimony effect. Now, the story that the paper tells there is that party ID, that patrimony, and if you think about it, patrimony is a genuinely exogenous variable. I mean, what you own is a pretty exogenous thing. Our argument is that property ownership, ownership passes its influence indirectly through partisanship. So, so we are going to return to that idea that patrimony's influence is indirect. The third column uh, introduces, um, what do we introduce there? Yeah, that's left off at the bottom. Uh, yeah, it's, it's left off in the slide. At the bottom of the slide, you should have, uh, this is, valence, uh, this, this is the valence here. This is the positional, this is valence and this is positional. That's patrimonial. So here, column three, we add the two, uh, the two uh, economic issues, valence and patrimony. And what you see, and the scales are the same, the metrics are the same. Interestingly, what you see is the coefficients are the same size. Uh, uh, the positional and the uh, valence coefficients are the same size. Uh, now, one question, and I know Alan will ask this, so I'll just answer this now. It's like he'll say this positional, uh, this positional ta progressive tax thing is just an ideological left-right liberal conservative variable. 
You weren't going to say that. He wasn't going to say that. So I, I, so I maligned you. Not the first time. Not the first time. Uh, so, so we've got this control on, on ideology in there. And that, uh, that ideology also pick, well, you know, picks up lots of stuff. So ideology is in there. And what you see is even with the ideology control, um, and going on to the fifth, uh, the, the fifth column where uh, we have full controls, these coefficients on uh, valence and uh, economic position are strong. They don't change. Uh, the model fits are quite high. Um, you can calculate in terms of probability <coughs> shifts. If you do a shift for minimum to maximum values as opposed to standard deviation values, you see these shifts are, you know, in terms of uh, moving from, you know, poor economic perception to good, there's strong effects. Uh, a patrimonial effect. As I said, you, I argue, make, we make an argument about indirect effects. These models show you that patrimony has an impact on party ID and ideology independent of other sociodemographics. And we argue that that passes through a uh, block recursive. This is what I, you know, University of Michigan, Herb Weisberg taught me this. And he's, he's frowning over there. I, I must have got it wrong. Anyway, this is a block recursive model, which kind of lays out what we think is going on. Um, and then we calculate some probability changes in presidential vote from direct and indirect effects. You can take these with a grain of salt or not. You can just look at direct effects if you want conservative assessments. But the, but the message is that in a model, all these three kinds of economic voting add something. They have independent or orthogonal to each other. And if you, if you don't take them into account, you will underestimate the economic effects. Um, so, so a couple of conclusions. One conclusion is that you need to get beyond thinking about economy just as valence. You need to look at position and patrimony. There are three faces of economic voting. You need to get grants, etc. Okay, thank you. Clinton more intentionally were more likely to rally behind 
Obama. And I'm wondering um, if it could be ideology or context dependent, particularly in light of um, what Bill found about ideology having such a bigger role in the 2008 election, the fact that um, Clinton and Obama might be much closer together than other candidate pairings that we might see, um, and or where Clinton and Obama are relative to McCain as well, especially when you throw Palin in, which your second paper talked about how important right. she was. So if that makes that distance between the two sides even larger. Um, so if you could somehow try to work that in a little bit. Um, and it might end up having a footnote or caveat to the statement we talked about, sour grapes would be smaller in other years. Um, and contests in which the nomination stage was less divisive. It might actually just depend on the ideological placement of the candidates in the divisive primary um, and likely where the rival, rivalry sits. Okay, um, if you could tell us a little bit more about why previous aggregate analyses may have gotten this wrong, um, already the sour grapes. Is it the aggregation itself having an effect here? Um, I was thinking about bandwagons again. Um, is it the data collection in a different setting? If you could just tell us a little bit more about that because you're moving pretty significantly from that literature and there might be a methodological part that's going on there as well. Okay, um, the paper has a smaller end than I'd like and I'm sure you too. Um, but given that, it made me think about wanting to see a little bit more model diagnostics in here. So of course the two to R squared or log likelihood chi-square test, um, but also some, uh, like in just using CVD as individual source for outliers or covariate influence and whether it should really be um, linear in this model or maybe there's some over uh, dispersion that's occurring in the loaded model. Um, I doubt that that's gonna change what you're doing, but I think the kind of footnotes are just make readers a little bit happier. Okay, um, Bill's paper, love the details, the careful comparisons across elections are just ideal. It gives you such a great perspective on trying to figure out exactly what was um, different in this paper. And of course, when we look at it, presentation, we see the hallmark of Bill's work is all the graphical presentations, so you'll be able to get a lot out of reading it. Um, it's a very detailed and well done paper, um, and so I think it's ready to go. <laughs> but um, one thing I wanted to see, um, and obviously you being at this conference and some of the dinner conversation that I uh, was privy to last night, um, and then of course just with Michael's little pun and uh, stab about how economics plays or doesn't play, um, we know that that variable weight skewed in a particular election, um, and Michael coded that differently, where he put the three categories versus worse and less worse, and so maybe just doing it that way just to make sure uh, and see how that might or might not change, because I think on the face of it, when we think about a transformative election, um, everybody knew the economy was in the tank, we see this in the data, we knew this from the descriptions we read, um, you know, could it be that people were, and maybe explaining it a little more, why you think Lindsay didn't have this impact? Um, it could be that people are looking prospectively. I don't really think so, but maybe that's it. Um, so just a little bit more of, you know, this is what Bill thinks about why that would be the case, um, would be helpful. Uh, could we be missing an issue set uh, proxy via Palin was one thing I was wondering about too. And I think that's probably an ADMX question that you could put in there um, if you aren't opposed to it. Um, given you had Iraq, maybe you, you wouldn't be. Um, but thinking about on, I know people were looking about Google hits where you could track how many hits there were and hers just kind of went through the roof um, and perhaps with polarizing impact, um, that might be interesting to see how the primary vote holds up in that work. Okay, um, at the end you talk about the large effect for personality and you bring in a very interesting discussion but only a paragraph for me on recent psychological perspectives on ideology which I found really um, interesting and it also starts to move kind of 
in my own mind, closer to getting to center this whole trust idea. Yep. And so I'm wondering if trust is, you know, in a personality thing, if you see this psychological perspective literature trying to make that linkage between those two. And if so, that would be kind of fun to play out at certain meetings for schools at the professional level to see if it does. But it could be that people are, that when they're saying personality, they say, well, I trust this guy to do the right thing all the time or whatever. Versus, okay. Um, and then uh, this isn't related much to your paper, but in terms of the transformative theme, which I know Alan's going to hit on, um, and I was sort of struck when thinking about the two presidential candidates, it was certainly transformative in terms of campaign finance. Um, the fact that Obama rejected uh, public financing is, is going to change that system. And it's a little ironic that McCain is on the other side, given his lineage associated with campaign finance so much. Um, okay, back to or on to Michael's paper. Um, very clever paper, which when I say clever, I think that's almost like the highest form of compliment you can get, right? Um, if somebody says you're clever in your work, um, there's a handful of papers I would put that way, and, and this is one of them. So we get this distinction between valence, positional, and patrimonial, which I thought was very useful to think about. Um, I'd like to hear a little bit of discussion about your selection of leading measure of each di dimension that you have in table yeah. one. I was afraid you were going to I didn't know if there was something methodological that led you to pick it, or it just sounded like a good idea, or <laughs> what that was. So I'd like to hear a little bit about um, which one. Um, for example, which positional issue you've chosen would be um, interesting. Okay, um, I'd like to see a simple statistic on the correlation among the three economic issues um, that you end up choosing to look at there. Um, and I'm curious why it doesn't matter, it could be theoretical, it could be empirical, um, how much the house is worth, or if you own 2K of stock, or 20K of stock, um, and there might be something economic that doesn't, that just doesn't matter, but I'd like a little bit more, knowing a little bit more about that. Some of the next comments are sort of geared toward um, possible future things you might do with this, because you talk about you'd like to look at this over different elections, different contexts. Um, I didn't really like the how class is determined, that scale, it looked like it went from zero to one, from upper to working class, your measure of class. I'm pretty sure that's what it was because I, I quoted it. <laughs> so, yeah. um, so anyway, it's a, it's a subjective social class measure as right, I was right. reading it. Yeah. Okay, um, and where they think they are. And from looking at, there's a book in 2008 that came out called Social Class, How Does It Work? And the GSS has like over a 99% response rate for people to answer that question. Whereas the ANES, I think is much lower, like maybe 60%. And it seemed like a big difference was um, being able to tell give people another anchor of lower. So I think your lower anchor is working. And it seems like having that lower was important and a, and a number of people would pick up lower, actually respond lower class. And that also in turn seems to have people respond by using the upper class division. I don't know what the division is on your class variable there. But if you're gonna repeat this, given that class seems to be from a theoretical perspective, um, quite a bit related to your patrimonial idea and you wanna separate those, I think you wanna think a little bit more about um, how to measure that class variable that you have in there. And it seems like income, occupation, and education are all going to be part of that, but um, something for the future. Okay. I know you like parsimonious models, but um, I kind of wondered about how the economic variables are going to hold up against issues, or I shared the earlier discussion talking about religion. Even if religion doesn't show up, that's still pretty interesting to me. So, And I suspect your data, would CPAC can you get all those other variables, or do they only give you what you bought? Like, can you, you get? Can get uh, some of the chunk of it. You can get yeah. a chunk of it. Yeah, I would like to see where they yeah. determine, but okay. Um, I was also curious, since you were talking about other times and locales, I'm wondering how this variable works for other DCPs. Um, does this variable have X20 
levels, for example, will patrimony matter more or less for elections at a local local level, um, or perhaps even other uh, behavioral characteristics such as donating to campaigns or uh, putting a yard site, um, or even just other public opinion questions. I, um, it's it's a cool variable that might have a lot more purchase for us. Okay. Um, I'd like to know too if uh, if different types of voters, and it might be a
think it's worth a lot. Uh, yeah, it's worth uh, a grant proposal. <laughs> no, no, because it does seem worth more than anything. Sunshine, on your, on your main voter system, is your, uh, you had a measure of voter for somebody else besides Obama. Right. But Hillary Clinton wasn't included in that. Oh, it's because of the baseline. Pardon me? That's because that's the baseline. It's only people who voted for Lindsay Graham. Uh -huh. And so she was the baseline okay. category. <coughs> and so, in fact, that, you know, there was this really big difference when you look in the aggregate, kind of, but that goes away once you control for everything. So if I recall correctly. So you, you could run an equation that would be even a variable for both, and vote for Hillary is an independent variable along with mutual suspects. Um, at some iteration, we have done that. That might be another thing. When 
get more money, they have an opportunity to add more questions. And of course, it arises with the state level. CCAP, I'm big on the access. I, I assume at some point everybody will have access to these things, although I don't know. But anyway, we asked five policy questions. Uh, and we just, we picked the one, uh, I think, the it's not, we didn't pick the progressive income tax one. We didn't do a, a correlational data sweep through this stuff and pick the big correlation. We did something uh, even worse. We were just too lazy. We just picked the ones we thought sounded the best. So, so I don't know. I mean, you know, uh, we, we think the progressive income tax one is Compelling, and the other ones uh, work to some extent. And we've also looked at these, you know, other kinds of things like we have, uh, especially in the French case. Same sort of thing. We see the same sort of thing. Um, I had a uh, question when I said the bill taken. Um, my first question was uh, I, a comment saying that I thought your uh, uh, findings for African Americans were really interesting and that they're so much stronger. And I wondered if. Yeah. 
I think that's that's very very possible there. That, that's sort of what it, what I tried to get at and didn't say very well in, in the in the conclusions when I talked about the, the the personality there. I would not hang my hat on the on the group identification version of ideology. When I when I said that, I I, I was trying to be say something more general that people can use these terms in all kinds of ways without meaning the the, the abstract structuring principles that that Converse talked about or, or you know, classical uh, theorists talked about. So that that could easily what I was trying to say, not, not very well done, but I think you got something. And, and also what you said about what are the limits of the group, I, I, I think that's exactly one of the weak points of viewing ideology as group identification, which a number of people do, and I'm, I'm not that comfortable with that. Yeah, uh, another question for Bill. Uh, you're saying I was interested in, uh, as far as the effects of ideology the election and how it affects turnout. Uh, and you know, I, one of the things I thought was interesting that we didn't touch on so much like yesterday
the variation that you see in the effect of ideology is less about ideology and more about the effect of personality mm -hmm. perhaps being changed, right? And so, so is it the case that there was a bigger disconnect in people's evaluations of the traits of candidates and their vote in 2008, and that left then room for ideology to, to still explain some of the variation where it was essentially more endogenous in uh, 2004 when you have incumbents and mm -hmm. you know, so on? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it could be. Ideology certainly did have a, a huge effect there. So um, I'm not sure. I mean, this, this was, uh, as I've complained to a bunch of people, this was a very difficult paper to write. I, I, I wasn't, I'm, not, I'm still not comfortable with the findings, but I think any of these alternative interpretations are, are equally plausible to anything I hope to say about it. I, I sort of was designed to Obviously, that's what, what do you find? Yeah, and um, there is a like not statistically significant difference. Um, now, the, I think the bigger question is is, is our finding with um, voters the fact you know the, the it, there was no difference in terms of whether people who supported Obama or Clinton in terms of their panel attrition. One alternative explanation though for that finding is that those people who are particularly likely to say support Obama. Maybe there would be some, in other situations, a, a variation in their panel attrition rate, uh, but you basically find very little difference. There is more panel attrition among um, people who didn't vote in the primary, um, and just among people who you predict to be non-voters. But we did quite a bit of, of analysis in terms of how it might affect our results. Um, when you start looking at those people who actually voted, you can certainly get lots of over Um, how that would change things, and if you might see, you know, perhaps less or more defection 
Um, and, and what that sort of means, it gets to the whole point of you know time. If I begin, right. yeah, it's really you know very. It, there's two things. There's a different set because there's only Democratic primary of votes, and it's much more tense than it was in January um, when you had up to say Super Tuesday, February fifth. Right, and, and actually, so what what we we tried to do a little bit of this. We were tr we were looking for evidence that because there are some Republicans who say they voted in the Democratic primary, but the question is, were they behaving strategically? Right? Was it just because McCain was already known to be the nominee, and so is that explaining their vote in the Democratic primary? And so you would expect higher levels of protection. These are people who never would have voted for any Democrat. It was just they were kind of you know dabbling in you know sort of voting. And so there is a little bit of evidence of that. Nothing that we could. We don't have enough cases to be able to tease this out beyond just kind of some cross tabs. But what we do find is that if you look at um, the defection rate. Um, among Republicans and independents cutting at this date of when um, McCain was known to be a nominee, that those people who supported, uh, who voted in the Democratic primary before McCain was known to be a nominee looked no different from kind of Democrats, right? These are yeah. people who they right. chose to vote in the Democratic primary because they wanted to vote in the Democratic primary over the Republican primary. And it was a more meaningful choice. It was a more, right. And so those people who voted in the Democratic primary after McCain was likely to be the nominee were much more likely to defect. And all of this, keep in mind, you're dealing with a small number of cases, but the patterns anyway look very consistent with, with what you're talking about. And so we were toying around with, you know, what's, what's the appropriate way to capture time? Um, and and in, in fact, we're looking at people who voted and who they voted for, but keeping in mind that people voted at different points, you know, during the primary season, you know, we were trying to decide if, in fact, that's not the thing we want to look at. Is rather maybe what we wanted to look at was once it went down to, you know, just Obama and Clinton, should we should we have conditioned on that? And we actually had um, a hypothetical question where it said, this is when it was just Obama and Clinton. You know, if it was a race between McCain and Clinton, how would you vote? If it was between, and you know, that's a different way to kind of cut and look at. And what you find is that those people in that matchup, this hypothetical matchup, who said they wouldn't vote for Obama, only about 37% of them um, ultimately voted for Obama. And so, you know, there, there, you know it, it was actually a pretty good. Um, it was a very different contest then, too, right? It's not just absolutely. Yeah. I mean, but it gets to this point about time matters. And know. Hillary was way behind it. Although we can use, we can measure time in a variety of, of different ways, um, and then we cluster on the states, uh, standard errors on the states. Lots more questions in the. Uh, I was going to say that actually, <laughs> you, you know, there's another way that you can look at this divisive primary question in 2008, which is, you know, if you, if you, if you do a regression of Obama's share of the vote in 2008 on Kerry's share of the vote in 2004 at the state level, and then you throw in, you know, Clinton's share of the primary vote. In states that had primaries, um, you can estimate whether that had an effect. And I did that, and I can't exactly recall what I found. It was a while ago, but I'm pretty sure I found that it had almost no effect. Well, I remember just looking at this, it's a scatter plot, right? Yeah. It's just kind of eyeballing the New York Times yeah. had this 